morning to you. It's good to be back together again on Sunday morning. We're back today in our teaching through 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. And so you can turn there if you would, 1st Timothy chapter 3. We're back after about three weeks off. We, we uh, took a look at the, at the Palm Sunday and, and took some time with the Calvary as, as the Lord sees it. And then we took some time on Good Friday to look again at some reactions around the cross. And then on the Resurrection Sunday, uh, a look at, again, the completion of Christ's work on the cross and how the Lord looks at that and what our response should be. And my prayer for you, of course, this week is on the heels of Easter that you made a new commitment to be in the Word. I pray that you were in the Word every day this week. If you missed that, maybe this week will be the week that you renew that time. It is very, very important for you to be in it. You can see the Holy Standard before you, that you can be blessed by the reading of it and encouraged and have and know God's will for your life. And so take some time to do that. You can We can help you with that. There's a trifold out in the foyer. You can pick that up. It'll take you through the Word of God in a year. Or you can go to Uversion. They've got a number of plans that can help you do the same thing. So let me encourage you to do that. We're going to read together this morning, and this is instructions for the church for teaching, leading, and equipping. And it's a study through these pastoral epistles, guidelines for public worship, as we picked up at the end of chapter 2 and on into chapter 3, and the office of deacon is where we are now. So let's open up and look at verse 8. We'll read through verses 8 through 15, do a little review, and then we'll get into our new passages for today. Verse 8 starts this way, likewise, deacons must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain. Verse 9, beholding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Verse 11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife, and good managers of their children and of their own households. Verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping that to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of faith, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Let's stop right there. As you know, if you've been with us, Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit to address the proper functioning of the church, as we saw there in verse 15. And in this section, he's addressing the official office of deacon. And as we've seen, it's a, it's, it's a remarkable thing that translators took the word for servant and gave it English letters, service that really everyone is told to do is recognized in an individual, just so remarkable as the Lord has allowed that to happen. It is referring to a group of chosen and select people, and they're servants, first of all. And they are to be the living examples of the church of what the word doulos or diakonos looks like, humble, gracious, faithful service. And so here in this section, we're dealing with the matter of the qualifications of those who serve in this official office of deacon. Because just like in the section preceding this one, verses 1 through 7, where it dealt with elders and overseers, this section is not written in a vacuum. There was obviously some problems. And so... The office had to be defined to make sure that those who served it so were the qualifications that the Lord requires of the office. And it's, it's still relevant even today, as there are a lot of things people think about when they think about the office of deacon. And perhaps when we started this study, you thought some things about the office of deacon. And I hope we've been able to filter out the majority of those incorrect assumptions or experiences as the passage has really lent itself to our, a proper understanding. Now look there, if you would, in verse 8, it says this, deacons likewise, 
like in the elders that we just got through talking about, in like manner. And then we see then as we look at that that way, the qualifications are basically the same. And they are, first of all, obviously a model of service. They couldn't even be considered uh, if they didn't model service. It wasn't even on the radar for them, which ex will probably exclude a number and filter out a number of the experiences you have had. They had to be faithful servants like the Lord was in order for them to even be considered for the office. And they are also to be models in personal character and in their private lives and in their home life and in their family and in their testimonies, we'll see, to a watching world. So these are equally godly men. And the qualification principles from 1 Timothy 3.8 were very familiar to us as they are the ones we've seen already. So let's review them this briefly. And if you need some more support, you can, of course, uh, dig back in online and, and listen to the ones you've missed. But verse 8 says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. And so, number one, to hold the office of deacon, we saw that you have to be one who could be held as an example, men of dignity, serious and spiritual issues. And then we saw, number two, they could not be double-tongued. So they can't be a person who says one thing to one person and another thing to someone else. Just obviously, it's almost like he knows the church, right? That's the literal meaning, not two words. And then number eight, it's implied, of course, not addicted to much wine. So to be a deacon is to be the kind of person who does not allow the draw of drink to influence his life. The, the words are actually to occupy yourself with it, to be in need of or in possession of it. So the, pra, the present active nature of the participle just means that this is to be the habitual practice. Habitually, he's to be known as someone who is not occupied with alcohol. And then the next one we saw was not fond of sordid gain. And we saw that's the idea of being greedy to prosper, Sorted is a base attitude. And so we can sum that up then in this next number four qualification. He's literally not to have a base attitude or driven by what he can get or be or do or achieve. That can't be the drawing principles and driving principles of his life. And then we saw number five, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So number five, the deacon is to know the truth and hold the truth and obey the truth in such a way, mark it, that their conscience will keep them, from being, keep them pointed in the right direction. Now, the question is, what is the deacon supposed to hold as a matter of qualification? And the answer is a mystery of the faith. So what that isn't is it's, a list of, it's not a list of facts. It's not being able to list off about Christ and about Christianity and have your theology straight. This is holding it is possess something to the point of wearing it. This is the idea of taking it from knowledge and putting it on and starting to live that way. And as a participle, then, it becomes the ongoing attire of life. The deacon, in order to be qualified, has to be this kind of guy. And because the better your understanding of doctrine, the stronger your conscience will be, because that's what it means to be with a clear conscience. So a rightly informed conscience, uh, which agrees with the action, is not going to continually prompt you to do something different. You know what you're supposed to do. Your conscience is agreeing that you're doing the right thing. That's the essence of it. So these men then are to first be tested, it says in verse 10, and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. And that was number six for us. The deacon is to undergo a continuous evaluation. That's what, that's what it means to be uh, viewed as beyond reproach. And then it says, uh, like the elder, but they're, before they're put in office, the church must be careful to observe these very important attributes. So there's a first testing. There's a taking a look and making sure they meet the qualifications before you put them in the office. And this is really key. And so the evaluation for a deacon candidate would be an evaluation as to, first of all, obviously, his service. Is he a server of the church? 
a faithful, humble service, doing the most base of things. And, and what is his reputation? And what about the mysteries of the faith held with a good conscience? And what about the positive and negative reputation that's evident in the candidate's life? These are all questions that have to be asked. And this is not a surprise for us because in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, make sure before you lay hands on anybody position of elder, that you don't do it too quickly. In other words, make sure you have time to observe them. Make sure that they meet these qualifications. Because he tells that Timothy, if you put somebody in too quickly and they don't have these qualifications, they have some sin issues, whatever they foist on the church and hurt the church with these things, these issues, you're going to share in that responsibility. So it's not a surprise for us that there's a testing process that needs to be in place and a filter. So we have this pre-qualification test in the matter of personal character and spiritual life and Christian service. And then we have this ongoing evaluation as he serves, just like for the, for the elder. And, and if the first one doesn't turn up any red flags, and as long as he continues in the qualifications that are listed here, he'll be considered market beyond reproach. So the deacon has to be literally with no accusation and no blame. So that's number seven qualification. The deacon is to have a valid, no valid accusation or blame attached to him. I mean, he might have some false accusations, but he doesn't have any valid ones. And this is not subjective. And so it's not, well, you know, we, we didn't think that particular qualification was that important. We put him in. He has some other things that we want. The Lord has the right to direct the church and the conduct of the church as he sees fit, and particularly those who serve the church as officers, as we just saw in verse 15. And so he gives us the standard for those who are to be examples of service, which again begs the question, does the Lord want anything less for his church than no blame? And the answer, of course, is no, because it's one standard for everyone. It's just for the deacon as well as for the elder. They're to be the example of those things. That's what godliness looks like. That's non-negotiable. And that becomes the example that the church is to follow and come up under. Now, we, put, we finished with verse 11 last time, so look, let's look there if you would. It says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, we spent a lot of time here because this is a confusing passage. It's caused a lot of commentaries to be written, and uh, many of them are right, and some of them got it absolutely wrong. And we won't go back over that because you can catch up with that online. But as a summary, some understand this word to read as deaconess. And, and the problem is here where both sides of the sentence were talking about deacons, and these men are the main focus, that's a stretch. And the Greek word for women, which is here, can be translated wife or woman and has to be translated wife in verse 12 and previously in verse 2, the husband of one wife. So it doesn't say servant, it says wife. And so in, now in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and we looked at this quite extensively last time, I'll just give you a brief overview. He is talking about a sister named Phoebe who is going to visit the church in Rome. And he says to the church, I commend to you our sister Phoebe who is a servant, and that's the word diakonon, of the church, which is, at, which is at Chantria, that you receive her in the manner worthy of the saints, and you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper, again, of many, and myself as well. So, he's talking about a very important uh, woman who's going to come to the church, and here the word is diakonon, and I think that's pretty important. In, in our passage currently in Timothy, it's not, it's wife. But here it's diaconon. And so here I think you could make the case, it, it wasn't transliterated deaconess, it still remains servant. But Paul's comments about Phoebe I think are important here. It gives us a little bit of a, of a, a, a base by which we can make some, some, uh, some conclusions. But 
So I think it lends to an official office. It certainly would appear to do that, uh, which appears to be what Paul's doing. We also illustrated the point that there's a record of a letter from Pliny the Younger, who is an historian. He wasn't a historian in the first century. He was a lawyer and a magistrate and an author. But we, he's 200 plus letters left behind, all recovered. And these letters lend a, a lot of understanding to early first century culture. But one of the letters is a letter addressed to the Emperor Trajan. And it mentions a Christian problem and a trial that he's going to be presiding over of two slave women who they call deaconesses. I love that. I love that outside the Bible, people who are in the community recognize that there were some women who were servants in the church, outstanding and in leadership positions in service. And so I think it's, it's safe to say with a good conscience that that was an office. However, in our passage, I don't think that's what it's directed to. I think here, I think it's best to see it because it doesn't use the word service. I think in good conscience, we look at this passage as a guide for women who serve in the church. I think that's the best way to look at it. What I mean by that is that it's placement in the passage and the required understanding of the word woman or wife in the passage because it's all through there and because we're talking about deaconesses or deacons in the verse right before and deacons in the verse right under it. It appears that Paul's simply telling Timothy, mark it, that if he evaluates those who may be suitable for the office of deacon, if they're married, then those who are serving as deacons have a helpmate who meet these qualifications. So there's some qualifications that if you're serving as a deacon and you are married, there's some qualifications that they are going to have to meet. And that makes sense, I think, because you can't have one person in that marriage who is a godly example of what it looks like to serve the church, and then the other half of that uh, two become one partnership who are not. So obviously he addresses these women, and, but this will uh, come back to the deacon to make sure that these are true with his wife as he is the head of that household. So she would be a very valid part of the ministry, a key part of his testimony, and the godly standard applies to all women, of course, not just to these who are serving. What qualifications, though, do they need to have in order to be able for him to serve? So this qualifications for them is what qualifies him to still be in the office. Now look back at verse 11, if you would. Women must likewise, so in the like manner as their husbands, that makes sense, and there's a tremendous common sense here, not only in the nature of marriage in which the two become one, but also in the strength that a godly couple is going to bring to a serving ministry. So you have the wife with all of her gifts and understanding and insight along with his. That just makes for a wonderful combination. So in like manner as the deacons, the male counterparts, as, as if we think of Phoebe or the two Pliny mentioned, it could certainly be two women or three women there who are deaconesses, but they may have been married. We don't know. Nobody says, but they have to be dignified, not malicious gossips, temperate, faithful in all things. So there's some qualifications that have to be in place. Regardless of where you're looking, these things have to be true. And that first requirement for her that her husband must make sure is there as she must be dignified. That's the same exact requirement as her husband. So in other words, befitting behavior, implying they're highly esteemed, worthy of respect, and it'll ensure that they are, will not only be mutually respectable, but they're going to have the same heart for ministry. And that makes sense. You want that heart to beat as one. And then the second one is not malicious gossips. And so here wives are not to be diabolos, literally to throw words. The idea is to be an accuser, to be a slanderer, or prone as a slanderer. She can't be that and he still be qualified to serve as a deacon. And then the next one is temperate. Nephileos, that's the same word we saw for an elder. It is the word temperate. It means to be wineless. That's precisely its translation. 
And just in case the wives thought there was some double standard, one for their husband and then another for them, Paul's clear with Timothy on the issue. There's just one standard for everyone, and the deacon's wife must be an example to the church for testimony's sake and be without alcohol. That's the sake for the sake of her husband's testimony. And then, here's the next one, faithful in all things. And I love this because 1 Timothy 3.9 says of their husbands, uh, but holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And for the wife, this is a wonderful adjective and really goes very, very well with what we just looked at. Whatever it is that she does, whether she is a wife, whether she is a mother, a teacher of younger women, a servant, uh, whatever it is she does outside the household, she's to be found faithful in what? In all things. Just takes in whatever it is that she plies her hand to, her mind to. And what's the standard for faithfulness? It's not subjective, is it? It's what the Word of God says. So she has to know it just as well as her husband. She has to hold the mystery of the faith. She has to know what the Bible says and wear it. And that's a really high standard, isn't it? But no higher than for every believing woman. But for this woman, she has to be an example because she's visible. And so these are non-negotiable. And that was qualification number eight for the deacon. If he's married, he has to have a wife who has respectability that matches his own requirements. And most importantly, his wife's qualifications are imperative for him to be qualified in the office of deacon. So that has to be the case for her, for him to be qualified. And that's because as the two being one, she's going to be involved in helping him serve. And because of his prominence then, and as an example of godly service, he's going to be visible in the church too. And if it seems to be the case with Phoebe, she's serving in the church in a major way as a deaconess, or the other two we saw, then these qualifications have to be prominent. So there's there's no compromise here, and there's no conflict in understanding. Just if they're in there, this is what it has to look like. Now, look at verse 12, if you would. Here's the next qualification. So again, verse 10, talking about deacons. Verse 12, we're talking about deacons. So verse 11 is talking about deacons. It's just referring to those if they're married. Now, look at verse 12. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. Same word we saw. The word for wife, it's the same one we saw in the previous verse. And good managers of their children and of their own households. So husbands of only one wife. Look, look at that, let's look at that. That is the same requirement for those who serve as elders. As we have seen, it, it shouldn't surprise us. It's, it's uh, only one standard for everyone. But those who serve have to be examples of the standard. And so the deacons have to be examples of it too. And the Greek statement is qualitative. It's, re- it's rendered as a one-woman man. And what that means is it's just the deacon's visibility and to be an example of service, that's principle number nine. He's devoted to one woman in his heart and in his mind. If he's going to be beyond reproach, if he's going to remain qualified then as a deacon, he can't be a player. He can't be a philanderer. He can't be a womanizer. And the New Testament translation has it, New Living has it like this. He must be faithful to his wife. That captures it. Has to do with his attitude, his character. The issue here is the heart of the man, the moral character of the man. And again, the verb form is still present, active, and imperative. So it's um, tense voice and its mood is a command. And that's to be the reality. It's not an option. It's in the command form. And just like we saw earlier, this isn't speaking about polygamy. There's a lot of things that people try to throw into this, and they mess this up pretty often. And I've seen a number of church, uh, uh, church uh, uh, policies and all that that just mess this completely up. So we're going to try to clear it up because we did it again uh, with Elder, and it's been a while, so I want you to see this. It's not talking about polygamy. It's not just isolated just to, you know, first century. First of all, this wasn't, polygamy wasn't an issue in this period of time. 
It was always wrong for God's people to have more than one wife. That's never been okay, even back in the past, okay? And don't, so don't get that wrong. Paul regarded polygamy as unlawful, and he forbade it for everyone, not just church leaders in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. And the Romans typically didn't have polygamous marriages. Why would they bother with that? They had concubines. They had temple prostitutes. Divorce was rampant. They could switch wives whenever they wanted. Sexual promiscuity was rampant, just like today, which fits the understanding still. And again, like we saw earlier, this isn't talking about whether you've been married a second time either. The text could have easily said that. You can't ever have been married before. It could easily have said that. That's not what it says. It actually just says one woman man. So this again is speaking about character and not about marital status. Because there's places in the scripture where God permits and honors second marriages. And so we won't go through all of that again because it's quite extensive. And I took you through a good bit of that when we went over uh, the office of elder. You can catch up there in um, qualifications of an elder. I think it's probably parts 12 through 14, somewhere in that area. God can honor a second marriage in the case of death of a first partner or for other reasons we'll look at in just a minute. So it can't automatically be saying, okay, if you've ever been married before, you're disqualified to be a deacon. The only qualification, though, if you remarry is what? You have to be a believer. So the passage is also not permitting being a deacon if you've ever been divorced and remarried. And again, that's not what the text says. It could easily have said, if you've ever been divorced, you cannot serve as a deacon. But that's not what it says. It just says one woman man. Now, we know that God has stated numerous times that he hates divorce. We get that. You can't divorce your wife for any reason. We understand that very clearly. If it's, if it's for any other reason than adultery or the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then you cause her to commit adultery when she remarries. And by implication, you're going to commit adultery too. So these are non-negotiables. The Bible is very clear about this on a number of places. So if a reason for divorce is other than immorality and remarriage or an unbelieving spouse, then that would disqualify the candidate on other grounds. So if they had an unbiblical divorce and then remarried someone after that unbiblical divorce, they would be in open what? Adultery. So they wouldn't be able to qualify as a deacon. That'd be an outstanding accusation, and it would be a legitimate one. See, but that's not what we're talking about here. See, that, that could certainly disqualify him. But the Bible teaches that remarriage after divorce is within the will of God in some circumstances. So he's not going to say that you're free to be remarried and then turn around and say it's a sin for you to have done that. You see? There's some qualifications there. And so if, if, all, if, if you need all of that background, I, I need you to go and look back because there's a lot of things there and I can fill them in for you too if you contact me. But the point I wanted to make, I wanted you to see is that remarriage in and of itself is not a sin. If the Bible says you're free, you're not under the law, then you're free to do it. And there's no, then there's no stigma attached to it. If a person is widowed and remarried, there's no stigma there. If a person was the innocent party of a divorce where the other person was in an unrepentant adultery, an adulterous relationship, then remarriage is not a sin. Divorce and remarriage is not a sin. If an unbeliever departed because they didn't want to stay, remarriage is not a sin. So a potential deacon is not automatically disqualified with a second marriage as if that in and of itself was sinful. So let's qualify this now. So it's, it's not so cut and dried. Many, uh, many church policy, they, they add a whole bunch of things. They pile a bunch of things on there that it doesn't say, which really limits what the church can do. And you've, you've, made, the, you've made the opening smaller than the Word of God makes it. There are other places in these qualifications that may impact the question of remarriage, especially divorce and remarriage, as we just said just a minute ago. 
If you've divorced unbiblically and remarried, then you're in open adultery. You wouldn't be able to serve. So, and also, as you look at verse 12, you see this. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. Here it is in the next phrase. And good managers of their children and of their own household. So, the question of the divorce and the remarriage would have to be evaluated with that requirement too. Because people will ask, what if the deacon's married and his wife commits adultery and wouldn't repent and took off? Can he remain in the ministry? And there are a number of combinations that are like that. And there's an infinite amount of all mix-ups and all of that, okay? So, here's the thing. That would have to be another test you'd have to apply. Does that situation expose an inability to manage his own household? So, you have to ask that question. So, and quickly, I think just a few other things. And, and again, there were a lot of support verses, and you can catch, that up, catch up with that. But quickly, another incorrect understanding of our passage, and this is, I see this often, would include that the deacon would have to be married in order to be a one-woman man. So, again, it's just like, like with the woman named earlier and the elder before that, it applies if you're married, okay? Otherwise, you're not responsible to be a one-woman man if you're not married, okay? So, it seems clear enough, but we want to make sure that we say it because it's not marital status that's in view here. And if you are single, there's nothing stopping you from serving as a deacon, and there's nothing stopping you from serving as an elder. There's no requirements that say you have to be married. But if you are married, you have to be a one-woman man. If you're not married, what would the requirements be? That you walk in purity, just like everybody else. If you're single, then you can't have a sexual relationship with anyone at all. And you wait till you're married, see? And if you don't get married, the Lord's given you a gift of singleness and has supplied that satisfaction in Him. And that's a gift that's given to very few because marriage is for most people. God created marriage for most people. And so he's given, he's given a special gift to certain people and they use that gift to serve the Lord in such a wonderful way. But you're not responsible for a woman if you're not married to one. And so I think that we can just put that to rest. So the if, issue here is just obvious. And we know this because we've looked at it several times in these sections. It's not marital status, again, that's in view here. It is not the circumstances of the marriage that's in view here. Here, the issue is a moral qualification. It's a character thing. He's devoted to one woman in his heart and in his mind, just like the other qualifications of morality or testimony or character. Because, listen, I've said this before. You could be married for 40 years to one woman and still not qualify as a one-woman man. Do you get that? So, you could be a player. You could be a philanderer. You could constantly be flirting. You would not qualify as a one-woman man even though you'd only been married one time. So that it, makes it, it makes it so absurd to pile on all these other things when it doesn't mean that. And it could exclude a guy who's married to only one person his whole life if he's not a one-woman man. And that's a really high qualification. And it's one Paul's carried along by the Holy Spirit to repeat here. He can't be able to be called out on this issue. And this is the one that seems to cause the most difficulty, both to the deacon and to the testimony of the church. And, and men, the standard is godliness. And so it's just one standard. It applies to you too. There has to be no other women in your life. If you're married, she's the one. You're totally faithful, committed totally to the woman of your vows. That should be the reality of your life now. And Shakespeare's uh, Merchant of Venice, it has, I think, it captures it really perfectly from an unlikely source. He says this, for she is wise, if I can judge of her, and fair she is, if that mine eyes be true, and true she is, as she hath proved herself, and therefore, like herself, wise, fair, and true, shall she be placed in my constant soul. 
That's it. That, that, she is the one you look at. She's your picture of beauty. She's your picture of everything, of wisdom and fairness and trueness and whatever. And then nobody else encroaches on that. Then you qualify as a one-woman man. And that's a beautiful way to express that from an unlikely source. Now, let's look at the second half of the passage. So, the deacon has to be a husband of only one wife. So, if he's married, totally focused on her. She's the only one. And then it says, and good managers of their children and of their own households. So, part of being beyond reproach is this example, just like we saw earlier with the, with the elder. And again, there's just one standard for the Christian father and the husband and the home. And so, let's start with the first one. And we're kind of back and forth here because they interact with each other. But let's start with this, good managers. And that Greek adverb, good Biblically proficient in something, and the verb is peristemi, so present, middle, participle. So let's explain that. Here's the deal. This must be the ongoing situation. The middle voice means he's actually participating in the managing of the home. So he's not disconnected, he's connected to it. And that word manager is to set over or to set before as primary. So pro of proistomy is over or above, and histomy is to stand or fix securely. So you put it all together, it's like the foundation of a building that's secured properly by a, a builder who knows what he's doing. He's going to fix it securely so it doesn't move, to preside over it, to rule over it. That's the idea. And again, this just affirms that this is a biblical role of men because there's just one standard. The man has to establish the biblical standard in the home and guide it and fix it securely. So that's the application to the testimony. And that really sounds so misogynistic and patriarchal, doesn't it? It does. And the Lord's not the least bit concerned about that. Because those names are not really new anyway, and he's not really worried about cultural shifts of wicked societies that begin to throw off the, the guidelines God placed on marriages and on families and on societies. The man is to lead the family without apology, but he's to do it with sacrificial servant leadership like Christ leads the church. He's not a dictator over her. He's not a tyrant that rules over his family. That's not what that's supposed to look like. He's a good manager, not just a manager. Good isn't subjective. So what does he manage well? First of all, children. The passage deals with younger children, and if you do it uh, biblically here, you're in good shape. If you don't do it biblically here, when they grow up, it's going to be a much bigger disaster than it is now. And what does it mean to manage children? We're going to see this more in depth in just a few minutes. It means that you're going to bring them up to know the Lord. You have to realize that the Lord has set up the family to produce more disciples, right? So when people tell me, well, I'm just going to let them make their own decision about, you know, following Christ. Listen, what you're telling me is they're already in Adam, in sin, and you're just going to let them decide what they're going to do. Can I tell you what's going to happen with that? They do precisely what every other person in the world has done, and you're just going to add to the decadence of the society, okay? So they have to manage their household well and to manage their children. And the deacon, as an example of godliness, is to manage not only their children, but their own households. And households, which we've seen a number of times, is the noun oikos. It, it is, we understand the meaning of the noun. This is the family it's the resources that God has given to the leader. It certainly can include the house and, and finances and all those things. And he has to manage those well. But mostly it's dealing with the people in it. And as we've pointed out before, we see the word associated with the church of God, which is the ecclesia, the called out ones, the assembly. 
And if you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, we just read it a minute ago, Paul says, I write so that you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the, here it is, household of God. Mark this, that's the same word, oikos, the church of the living God. And then we see an adjective in Galatians 6.10, same way. It says, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of, here's our word, household of faith. What's our job? We're supposed to do good to all people as we have opportunity, but particularly to the household of faith, to the church. If you can minister to the church, if you can serve them, if you can take care of them, make it, do so, and do it to the household of faith. And again, in Ephesians 2.19, which is just so appropriate because Paul's writing to Timothy and he's pastoring this church, but in Ephesians 2.19, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints, so we're direction and are of God's household. That's the general term for church, and it's the specific term for the father-son, father-daughter relationship you have with God now as you were adopted into his family. But it's important that it's the same word. And I want to show you those things again because the same word used for both households makes it easy to see the connection then Paul makes with the requirements for a deacon. Here it is. The deacon who fails at the family household is thereby disqualified from the other household the church. And the Word of God most certainly confirms that those who aspire to the office of deacon and desire to serve the church have to have demonstrated the ability to lead their families to Christ and have demonstrated himself to be a spiritually successful leader in the family. That's required before you can lead the church. And of course, the easiest way to know that is when the children are still in the house. And that would be part of the testing that has to happen that we talked about earlier. The family is the proving ground for leadership skills. And good managers of their children, of their own households, obviously they are demonstrating that ability to lead the family in a spiritual way and lead their children to godliness. Because like the elders, if you can't lead your children to godliness, you can't lead the church. And as we saw from verse 11, and our deacon's wife has to be faithful in all things, so there's some shared responsibilities there in the family, certainly, and, and there's a lot of overlap and we'll see in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, just like we saw in 1 Timothy 2, we'll see that again. There are some home management duties for the wife, and of primary concern that we looked at already is bringing up godly children and reversing the curse one child at a time. And being faithful in all things isn't subjective any more than any other requirement from the Scriptures is able to be rejected or accepted or replaced on a whim. These are requirements. So here's some requirements, and I think you'll see the connection here. And we're going to look at this. We'll be here probably uh, 10 months or so. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, there's a couple things there I think that are important. He's giving some instruction for older women. Now, let me ask you a question. As he talks about this shared responsibility and these important things that are supposed to go on. Do you think that the older woman has raised godly children that's placed here? Obviously. He's not going to put someone in a position to teach the younger women who haven't raised godly children and lived a godly life, right? They have to be reverent in their behavior and not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine. And they're going to teach what's good. So they may encourage the young woman. So why do we not put young women in charge of teaching the women about how to raise children? Because we don't know what the outcome's going to be yet, right? 
You have to prove yourself by raising godly children, another generation. And once you've raised another generation, then you have the right to teach other women how to do it. What do they have to teach them? Well, how to love their husbands. So they have to be an example of what? A husband lover. That's what it is. To be a husband lover, a child lover, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. These are women who come up under their husbands in an appropriate way. And their husbands are obviously over them in a servant leadership style. And it's all there. So mark it, the word of God will not be dishonored. It has everything to do with testimony, just like everything else we've looked at. Every qualification for an elder, every qualification for a deacon, every qualification for women who serve in the church, every qualification for every person, when you do it and you come up under it, what does it do? It makes the Word of God look good instead of making the Word of God dishonored. It's all about testimony. Because the church is the pillar and support of the truth. What happens when we, don't, when we don't follow the truth? We knock out that pillar and support. The church doesn't look like it's supposed to look. The world looks at us and says, they don't look a whole lot differently than I do. The children didn't turn out a whole lot differently than mine did. And so it undermines the authority of the Word of God. And again, this is the same word that we saw in 1 Timothy 5.17. As an elder, same word. He is to rule. Proistomy, as an elder over the church. He's in the primary spot in the household of faith. So it's a very consistent understanding of what it looks like. He's to establish that, fix that righteousness and that godly standard in the church as much as he's able to under the great shepherd. So the way that he does that will give evidence of him being able to do that kind of thing in the church. So if he establishes his own household well, then he's established the fact that he is qualified amongst the other qualifications to lead the church. It's the same with a deacon. He's an example of leadership in his home, a strong spiritual leader there. And notice that it says he manages or rules at home. He is to manage well, not just manage. There are a lot of men who are filling the role of manager. They just aren't doing it very well. I mean, they may bring in the money. They may provide a comfortable home. You know, everybody's got a nice car or whatever, but they're not getting the desired effect, see. So a good manager of their children and their households, and that word good, again, as a footnote, we looked at this before, that's the word kalos. It's a really great word. Not only does it mean well done, it, only, it also indicates the word beauty. There are a lot of words for good in the New Testament. This one is one of my favorites. It has the idea of a, 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 a sculpture that's finely done, right? So you look at something and you say, he was so talented. One of the ones I like is one of the Greek sculptures where it shows a woman and, and it looks like she has a veil over her face. Have you ever seen that one? That is just so incredible, isn't it? Not only is he incredibly talented, but that feeds your soul. It's made out of granite, and it looks like she's covered with a veil. That's the thing. It's beautiful to look at. It's a classic piece of art that you just stand in front of, or a book that you read over and over again. Not just because they crafted the words super well, but because it ministered to you on a whole different level. And so you can go back and read, read it again and again. You appreciate the author's craftsmanship, but you appreciate the beauty of it by itself. That's the issue. That's what it looks like when a deacon or an elder or any of you raise their family in this way, being a godly leader, fixing that godliness, bringing up godly children. That's a beautiful thing. It's not just showing it's well done. It's a gorgeous thing to know that that's at work. And that's a pretty high standard for deacons, wouldn't you say? And for the pew, because it's one standard of godliness. That's the standard for a believing family. It's a man leading his family in such a way that it appears beautiful to those who look at it because that lets you know that there's biblical leadership there. And again, it's not that the qualified man's family is perfect. No family's perfect. 
And it's not that the qualified children, uh, qualified man's children never make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. What will be unmistakable, though, is the direction of their life. It's not that did they stumble. It's what happened when they got up. It's what they said when they stumbled. See? Because they're, when they're young, let me just, I'll say this to you as I said the first service. When they're young, one of the ways you know there's good leadership going on in the house is they're going to respect and obey the first time. That's what obedience means in the scripture when you tell your children to obey. It's first time obedience. And the habits will not be regular fits and outbursts of temper and willfulness and disobedience and disrespectful attitudes and words. Okay? If you're raising your children in a godly manner and you're doing the, the job you're supposed to do, those will not be the trademarks of your children when they're young. They won't be throwing fits. They won't be willful. Okay? That is not raising your child up. Listen, there, is so, there are so many competing philosophies about raising children. But if you choose the one that allows your child to do what he wants, he will bring you shame. A child left unto himself will bring his mother shame over and over and over again. You can't allow willfulness, disobedience, regular outbursts of temper and disobedient, respectful words towards you. That is not raising your child in a godly manner. Your outcome is going to be terrible. And what's going to happen is when they're older, they're going to walk and take their cues from the world and, and, and act like they've never been exposed to the gospel. That's where you're headed. What you want is an older child, if you're managing your house well, and have a growing relationship with the Lord. And they walk, won't walk in rebellious disobedience. And they won't take their cues from the world. And they're going to struggle just like you did as a young adult. And they're going to have to find their way. And they have to figure out how their faith is going to apply to whatever it is the Lord's having them do. And that's always a learning curve. But the direction of their life is going to be, I want to be pleasing to the Lord. And I'm going to figure out how to do this in the best possible way. That's what you are responsible to, to create in your family. And you do that by spending hours on your knees, asking the Lord for wisdom on how to deal with an infinite number of combinations of situations that are so complex and so hidden, and your children are Adam and Eve, okay? Listen, they're going to figure out how to figure out to beat you at this, okay? And to get their own way. And you've got to figure out how to circumvent all of that, and you've got to reel them in. And you've got to do it by discipline, and you do it by uh, correction, and you do it by spanking, and you do it by rewarding good behavior, and you do it over and over again, and then you model Christianity to them, and you do it in a way that's the best of your ability, Spirit, Holy Spirit empowered, so that you're a clean glass, and they're looking at Jesus through that glass, and someday they'll seek out Jesus on their own, and then they'll have that Holy Spirit restrainer, and they'll begin to walk with him. But this is your job, see? And if you can't do this, you can't lead in the church. That's, that's just all there is to it. If the outcome at the end is children who, don't, who walk in disobedience, you can't lead in the church. And that's just so hard for the church to hear because we're so used to seeing this disobedience. Our children should automatically be following in your steps if you're doing what you're supposed to do. They should be, they should be repenting and asking the Lord to save them, and then they want to be baptized. That's just automatic. And yet it seems like it's, it's the exception, not the rule anymore. Children get old enough and they're out. They don't want to go to church. They don't want to be around anything. Listen, Children can pick up duplicity pretty quick. If you say one thing and you do something else consistently enough, they're going to do what you do, not what you say. So there's a lot on that, and there's so much connected, and that's kind of a rabbit trail, but I think it's important that you don't want to end up failing in this area. For, of course, you can't lead in the church, but the greater problem is, is you just added to the, added to the rebellion of the world out of a family that should have done better. And again, this is just so hard to realize because 
And as you, as you look at men who are going to lead the church, because a man may appear to have a spiritual life together. He, he may appear from all aspects to be qualified in all these other areas that we've looked at. And he may be, but he may be disqualified to lead because of the testimony of ungodliness in his family. Okay? This, this might be the one that catches. And that could be that way for a number of reasons. It could be that he started too late realizing his responsibility. It could be that he came to faith later or he came, became convicted of his shortcomings as a spiritual leader too late. Or he may have had been absent from his home for long periods of time for whatever reason, for work or for playtime or whatever, where his influence was needed, but it was missing. Or he may have bought the lie that, you know, I get to have my life too. You know, my family's not my whole life. I get to do what I want and, and climb the ladder to success and all that. And, and I don't have to sacrifice really for all of this. I get to have a life. And all that at the expense of, of the character and discipline of children. And, and early on when the children are little and the marriage is young, the cumulative effect of the shortcomings here aren't readily visible or they're just barely becoming visible. And those things may have, though, a similar result, which is that his wife and or his children were already on an established pattern which wasn't this. See. And so at that point, no matter how spiritual he may be set before God in the right place, he would not be qualified to serve the church in that position as an example because he didn't pull it off with his family. I think you can see that, right? I think you can see the warning that's built into all of that with young families and people don't have families yet. There's so much there that has to be in place. You've got to be ready. I told you before when the Lord blessed us with four boys, it's been such a joy to have them grow into men and, and be able to have relationships with them. But when, when, when I found out the Lord was pregnant with my oldest, I panicked. I mean, I thought it would be great. And it was, it was great. But I panicked because I'm like, I can teach him to do a hundred different things. But I only really have to teach him a few things. And I had to make sure I figure out what that is. And that really gave rise to the study that I share with you on a regular basis. Well, what are the things that are key that you need to make sure that you address with your children on a regular basis? Because, listen, you get that little window, and it's not very big, where spanking is going to work. And after they get out of that window, it just insults them, and you have to stop. But in that window where spanking and reward work, you have to mold that little person. They have to come up under you. They have to submit to you, because if they don't ever submit to you, beloved, they're not going to submit to Jesus. Or if they do, it's going to be a long, rocky, broken road, which is going to bring you tons of grief. And that's not what you want to have. So, again, you know, it might not be obvious early on with the individual, but that qualification is primarily the family, the wife, and the children if the Lord gives them, and the order of the home. These things are not easy. And there's an effort in prioritizing the family kinds of things and ministry kinds of things. Coming home, taking time off, excluding other interruptions, stopping doing some things you really like to do and you used to do and, and they were things that you enjoyed, but you don't have time for that anymore because you got little ones who are saying, when's daddy coming home? So daddy needs to come home. And build into those little guys and show that you have leadership qualities and, and you're following that example that he gives to those who lead the church. And you have to have constant vigilance and you're watching all of those things and all those options that the world throws at your child constantly, insidiously, trying to draw them in a direction. You have to cut all those off. There's hardly any end to that when they're little and it's still pretty hard when they get older. It's just such a narrow gate for the deacon and nobody's saying that that it's easy. No one. Which is why 
when he does it correctly, this next verse is just so satisfying, and we're going to close with this. Verse 13 is this. And I love this. This is just such a breath of air. In the middle of this very difficult requirements, requirements for those who serve the church, non-negotiable as examples to the flock, this is just so great. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It's the only place where you see something where someone is an officer in the church that has this here and now kind of encouragement. For, for the elder, First Timothy 5, it says that if you serve well, you, you'll get a crown of righteousness when you see the Lord. So it's like long after it's all done and everything's forgotten and you're with the Lord, that if you served as an elder, did it well, he's got a crown for you. But here, this is just such a great encouragement. And the understanding here can't be missed, nor is it some minor addition here because of the language. The idea of serving well, which is aorist participle. So in other words, they've been faithful servants in the past and continue in the present. So that really automatically precludes like a real short deacon stint, okay? A lot of churches say, you can't serve at a deacon longer than two years. Well, beloved, listen, it's impossible for, for you to complete this kind of job with that kind of language, um, heiress participle, serving well in the past, and the longer you serve, the more you get a standing. It's impossible to fulfill that when you just limit that. And the reason why people do that, of course, in a congregational-led church is they want new representatives on a regular basis to keep the pastor reined in and, you know, have their needs, you know, communicated well and their complaints and all that. Listen, that's not what the deacon's supposed to do. I think you understand that. But here, it's just so great. They've been faithful servants in the past. They continue in the present, meeting all those qualifications as an example. They're doing it, okay? And this is so beautiful and just so powerful. The longer they do it, the more beautiful it is. But not just that. They obtain for themselves a high standing. The one who is in charge of all the households is in view here. The one who's over all things the church, he's the one who's watching. So before the Lord, he attains a good standing. I mean, you want to put up your hand for everybody who'd like to have a good standing before the Lord? I mean, that is our ultimate goal, isn't it? We, everybody says, well, I'm sure they said, you know, well done, good and faithful servant when they went to heaven. Maybe. Maybe they just got in there with a robe of righteousness, see? We don't know, do we? But here we know. We know if you're serving faithfully as a deacon that this is a, this is a compounding kind of blessing. The one who watches over all things in the church, he attains this good standing. The church recognizes it in light of the objective standard. So they're informed about what the Bible says about this guy and what he has to do or this woman. And they're doing it. So they're an informed church and they're like, wow, his standing goes up in the eyes of the church. He deserves much respect by the church, which he gets, and he's considered worthy of reward when it's all made known, and the Lord makes sure that's going to happen too. And, and nobody knows what rung he's standing on except the Lord, and the Lord doesn't forget. Nobody knows what kind of sacrifice it took. Nobody knows how much effort it took. Nobody knows how much blood, sweat, and tears it took to make sure that happened. See? But the Lord does. And so he Serves well, he obtains for himself a high standing, and here it is, great confidence in the faith. That confidence is a word you're familiar with. It's the noun Pharisee. Think of Pharisee. I don't want to be a Pharisee. Well, you know, like I told you before, the Pharisees are given in the Bible so we know what not to be like. But here, the word has to do with a boldness in faith and testimony and impact. The longer you serve faithfully as a deacon, the more impact you have, the more boldness you have the more faith testimony you have. All as a result of doing it right over a long period of time. And all 
according to the faith that is for Christ's glory and his honor. That's, so, that's such a big blessing. And I love the thought of that. I love I, deacons that I've known over the years who serve for a long period of time. They, they're this. They, they raise godly children. If they had a, a marriage, they were faithful. Or if they didn't have any children, they were single. They were faithful, and they did these things, and they submitted themselves to all these. They're just amazing. They're amazing guys. Most of them working full-time jobs in other places, and they are raising godly families, and they're showing their leadership skills, and all this is just so awesome. And the Lord doesn't forget any of this. And so he puts this right here, and I think this is a big encouragement. And boldness in the faith, testimony, and impact. Everybody wants impact. You get the real thing here when you do it right. You know, beloved, we, we've all been bought by Christ for a sole purpose to do as we're told, right? So this is the joy of the deacon position. He officially becomes the example of what we're all supposed to do when we come to Christ. Christian service, then, is, is first and foremost living out as a slave relationship to one Savior. I mean, that, that's a very clear definition of Christianity. And the main work Christ sets all of us to do in serving him is becoming the slaves of our fellow servants. That's what love means, as he himself showed in the Last Supper as he played the slave's part and washed the disciples' feet and served them. And then he went on to serve us with a sacrifice. And so I just love this office of deacon. It's so remarkable that it's, it's an official office of service. It, it holds such an important place in the church. I would say the most important place because it is the example of what everyone in the church has to be like. And so this is a marvelous passage, and I hope it's a blessing to you. Let's close. We're out of time. We'll give ourselves to the Lord in prayer for a few minutes. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. It's just a joy to be in it. And we thank you that uh, early on when we were in our musical worship time with Jacob that we could spend time just examining ourselves and getting ourselves right and, and repenting of things and, and worshiping you in spirit and truth. And then we come to the word and then it just resonates with us. We hear these things and they do look beautiful to us. And we, we, we have examples of this is how it works. And we see guys who are like this and women. And it ministers to our heart. It's not just good as a, as a matter of hard work and excellence. It's good and beautiful to see. And so, Father, thank you for the resonation your word does. I pray that we'll be in it more each day, that we, uh, as we see the day approaching, we want to be equipped for works of service. Help us to know what those are. Help us to be able to hold the mystery of the faith in a good conscience. That's one standard for everybody. Not just you know the facts of the faith, but you, you look like those things. You wear those things as you see what it says, what it means by what it says, how that applies to us. Father, help us to then apply it to ourselves. And Father, also, before we close, we want to make sure we're praying for kings and all in authority and all men everywhere. It's not your will that any perish. So we want to pray far from us and people can come to faith, people that Eli and Jess are ministering to and, and those that uh, Daniel Gillette are with right now, even those in authority, that the church might then function in a way that's outside of, of uh, difficult times many leaders create for it, even in our own country with wicked leaders at the helm pray for them to be turned. I pray for some to witness to them and the wicked laws and things that cause misery and harm to people and, and, uh, and a direct route to hell. I pray that you will intervene there. Help us to be thinking about that often. And Father, we pray all this in the name of your Son. We're so grateful that we can come. And Lord, we think a few things that he told us to do along with being conformed to the image of Christ and all these uh, requirements. But 
that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength and our neighbor as ourself. Just a general philosophy for the world as we walk in it. And then to take the gospel to every person, everyone that Lord you've put in our in our circle, pray that we'll be faithful. Give us an opportunity to open our mouths and give the good news out and help us to be prepared to do that. And we'll do this as we wait for your son's return, which we long to see. And it's in his name we pray. All God's people said, amen.